Thank you, Jen. Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you guys. Uh, I was away last week in central Kentucky, the church that my wife and I served at previous to coming here in 2019, uh, and they celebrated their 154th anniversary. So imagine that. We'll be 12 years old in October as a church. Uh, They've got a few years on us. Um, It was nice to be back there to see a lot of them. Uh, They also sent a mission team over the summer that's done a lot of the most significant work in the sanctuary at our new building. Uh, So it was just great to say thank you and be able to serve them uh, in a different way than the way that they served us. But to send greetings on your behalf, you didn't even know that I did that. Now you know. I said that you said hi, so you said hi. Um, And I got a little bit of sunshine, which was nice. I had no idea that we'd be, uh, you know, living here in the 40 days of Noah's flood. But we're together, and uh, I'm glad to be back in it with you guys. Last week, Ian Johannes walked us through the prelude to Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1. So if you missed that, I'll remind you, we are in a series through the book of Mark. Uh, It will probably take us somewhere in the range of 100 to 150 weeks uh, to make it through the entire book. So uh, today is number three. It's not too late to go back to the beginning and catch up to uh, the progress that we've made so far. Uh, Ian did a great job, in my opinion, of, of trying to help us understand the Um, the connection between the Old Testament and who Jesus was. Obviously, we live on this side of Jesus' cross. We live a lot later than when that event happened, and so we kind of start with that and often work our way backwards. And there's a lot of important insight for us into Jesus' identity and into the work that he came to do by understanding how many people who never met him, who lived sometimes thousands of years before he did, were waiting for him, anticipating him. I thought Ian did a great job of walking us through that, so thank you to Ian. Uh, When we started Mark two weeks ago, I asked you to remember three motifs, and uh, if you didn't catch these, I'm going to run through them quickly. We won't do this every week for 150 weeks, don't worry, but I just want you to start to think this way. Um, The first motif of the three that we're trying to trace through this book is Peter's unique voice. So though this was written down, handwritten by a man named Mark the Evangelist, Mark lived somewhere in the range of 30 to 60 years after Jesus ascended and returned to heaven. So Mark never actually met Jesus the man on earth that we're reading about. Mark's account of Jesus' life and times comes to us from Peter. Peter the disciple, Peter the apostle, and so we see Peter pop up in lots of different places. Um, A caveat for you is that we actually won't see Peter until verse 16 of chapter 1, and so you have just a couple more weeks until he arrives on the scene. But once that happens, he'll be in just about every story. Oftentimes Mark will say, instead of the disciples follow Jesus, he'll say, Peter and the other disciples. And the reason is because the stories were being told from Peter's perspective when Mark was walking with Peter through Rome and hearing from him. The second motif are the six longings of the human soul. Six things that we all have in common. We're craving these things. We want them to happen. If you want to hear more about this, you can go back two weeks and listen to the sermon uh, that we started the series. But these six longings are meaning. We long to have meaning. We long for satisfaction. We long for freedom. We long for identity, hope, and justice. Those are the six, and Jesus speaks to and deals with those six all the time in the book of Mark. And then finally is Jesus' identity. Um, Ian did a really good job, as I mentioned earlier, helping us connect the dots of how Jesus fulfilled Jewish prophecy about a redeemer, about an office called Messiah, uh, a new king over Israel. We saw in the life of John the baptizer the fulfillment of prophecies surrounding a precursor to the Messiah. But the Messiah wouldn't come solo. He would come right after. He would arrive after a precursor who went before him. That was always part of the deal. Um, And so John the Baptist fulfills that perspective and allows us to know that when Jesus shows up, he is who he says he is. So today, the three verses that we're going to really dig down into will be Mark 1, 9 through 11. And before we get to the text, I just want to remind you, we have scripture journals for you. 
this is a tool that we try to provide any time that we work our way systematically through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. And so if you don't have one of those or you don't even know what I'm talking about, I don't have a lot of time right now to explain that. But at the Connect table in the back of the room, when we're done today, there's a scripture journal for you. It's the whole book of Mark. On one side of the page is the verses that we'll be working through. The other side is places where you can take notes. And we want that to be a resource to you. It's a free gift, so you don't owe us any money, anything like that. We have a bunch of them still uh, that we'd like to give away. So if you want one, grab one today. Bring it back with you next week. We're going to be using these all the way until we finish the book. So that said, what we are about to discuss, the story that we're going to look at this morning, is in many ways one of the most disorienting moments in Jesus' ministry. Now, not so much for you and I, because I'm about to take the next 25 minutes and try to explain to you what's going on and why it matters and why it's significant. But for the people who were alive when Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was still on the earth doing ministry, this moment was really hard to comprehend for them. And I think you're going to begin to feel that and see it, but I want you to know, before we jump in, if it feels like there's a little bit of tension, even between Jesus and John the Baptist, there is tension there. There's a resistance on John's part. There's a little bit of fear that he might be about to compromise his ministry or he might be about to do a thing or say a thing that doesn't jive with the popular opinion of who God is or how God works. And yet, as we'll see, Jesus calms him down and says, we need to do this. He gives us a reason. But I want you to understand, as things begin to happen, this is a surprise. Nobody would have ever thought that the Messiah, the coming king, the person who would fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies, set the earth free, right all the wrongs, destroy evil once and for all, nobody would have ever thought that that person would need to be baptized. It was offensive in many ways, as you'll see, and the way that John resists him kind of becomes indicative of that. Um, So what I want to do is, you heard Mark's version of Jesus' baptism, Jen read that for us. I want to look at two of the other four Gospels. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the first four books of the second half of the Bible, what we call the New Testament, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those books are not about those individuals, they're all about Jesus, but they are told from the perspective of those four people. So we're going to look at John's Gospel, John's account for a minute, and we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, because they're all going to tell the same story from different perspectives, and I think there's a little bit for us to glean. So uh, if you'll take a look at the screen, we'll be in John 1. We're going to start with verse 29. The next day, so you can read the first 28 verses if you want to know what happened the day before. We don't have time for now. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And John the Baptist said out loud, we know it's out loud, loud enough for the crowd to hear because he says behold you don't say behold if you're trying to keep a secret behold he says everybody stops they look the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world john says this he goes on to say this is he of whom i said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was he existed before me now you'll notice if you're really paying attention to the screen there's a little tiny closed quote right there it's easy to miss that Now in verse 31, and I I just hope that you are grasping this with me, now in verse 31, we're moving from the direct quote that John the Baptist actually said on the riverbank into sort of this, like, testimony. Like, I don't know if you guys like The Office, the way that I like The Office, the TV show, uh, but they have these great scenes where they interview an individual in The Office. They're called talking head scenes where they just talk to the camera. Starting in verse 31 is that moment. This is now John the Baptist saying to John the Apostle, who wrote the book of John, This is my perspective on what happened. He says, I myself did not know him. So I wasn't sure that it would be Jesus. If you know the story, Jesus and John are cousins. And so maybe you would think that all along they were playing as kids and Jesus would make his blocks levitate or, you know, animals would come and eat out of his hands. And his cousin was like, oh, you must be God. John's saying, I had no idea that it was Jesus. 
Like Jesus was just the other kid that grew up about the same time that I did that I would see at family reunions. I had no idea that it would be him, that he would be the Messiah. But it was for this purpose that I came baptizing. The point of my ministry, John says, and and Ian did such a great job of illuminating this last week. The point of my ministry, John says, is to reveal Jesus to you guys. That's his whole job. John is saying the culmination of his life, his ministry, his time, his upbringing, being a good temple Jew, living in the wilderness, wearing camel hair clothes, and eating wild locusts and honey, it all reaches the pinnacle when he has one moment where he gets to say, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Jesus of Nazareth, and then he gets out of the way. That's the point for him. So this is a huge moment from his perspective. Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, recalls Jesus' baptism this way. This is from Matthew chapter 3. He says, when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, John the Baptist, in order to be baptized by him, John would have stopped Jesus. He would have said to Jesus, he wanted to say to Jesus, no, no, don't do this, saying instead to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now, which is interesting because that's not really a theological argument. That's just Jesus saying, please just do this for me, okay? Just trust me, this is important. Jesus goes on to say to John, it is fitting for us to do this together, for you to baptize me, so that I may fulfill all righteousness. And when John heard Jesus say that, John consented. He said, okay, all right, we'll do it. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. That's interesting. We know that John the Baptist could see into heaven in that moment as well, but probably they're the only two who have this experience. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said aloud, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So I want you to picture this. I really want you to try to understand the drama of the baptism of Jesus. Because this is more than just a theological treatise on the Trinity. Yes, the Father, Son, and Spirit are present. That's true. It's more than just Jesus kind of checking a box so that he stays qualified to do the ministry that we really care about, the healings and the casting out of demons and dying on the cross. This moment has immense significance and stands on its own as a really baffling and incredible moment in the life of Jesus, really in the life of humanity. If you can imagine yourself standing at the edge of a fast-moving river, I grew up in Texas, and so I imagine uh, the Colorado River, which runs kind of right down through the middle of the state. It's fast-moving. It's dirty. You can't see the bottom. Uh, Maybe for you, you're from the south, and you picture the Mississippi or the Ohio River if you're from the Midwest. Or even the Kenai is very swollen right now because of all the water that we've been getting. But imagine you're standing at the edge of a river, and the water is deep enough and wide enough that you can't walk across. This is not a creek that you can cross on a log that's fallen over. This is a river that could carry a boat down it if it needed to. And it's too deep for you to be able to swim. And on the shore, as far as you can see, are two groups of people. The first group who are there are the skeptics. They're the people who are standing around with their iPhone cameras recording, pointed at the water, and they are there watching the second group, who are the believers. There are podcasters there, YouTube personalities, recording interviews with people as they walk down into the water or come back out to the shore. And standing out in a shallow bend of this river is a man unlike anybody that you've ever seen. He's certainly nobody that you would be inviting over to your house for lunch or that you would expect to bump into at the office. Thick, unbrushed dreadlocks down below his shoulders, a big beard soaking wet. He's in the water up to his chest, and he has both hands over his head, and you can hear him shouting over the crowd, it's not too late. It's not too late to apologize. 
It's not too late to change. It's not too late to say that you're sorry and to change your way of life. You don't have to be who you've always been. And the response from the crowd is dramatic. Hundreds and hundreds of people stand in line, men and women dressed in everything from business suits to workout clothes, up the hill, from the bank, over the hill, and further than you can see. And one by one, people move from the front of this line down into the water to that man. And as they get close to him, he pulls them in and he embraces them. Each of them, individually, he takes a moment just to be with them in the water. And then they speak quietly for a few moments, and then he lowers them into the water. And then spluttering and gasping for breath, they come kicking up out of the surface of this river, and they fight their way back onto shore, and they run up to where their friends and family are waiting for them. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to you, because these people, when they come out of the water, they're smiling like they just won the lottery, even though they're soaking wet and freezing cold to the bone. And as you look around you, really the sheer size of the crowd begins to overwhelm you. I mean, these are Woodstock numbers of people on the banks of this river. Everybody from Jericho to Jerusalem and every small town in between has come down to the edge of the water to hear what this man is saying and to maybe be baptized themselves. Now, overcome by the idea of a fresh start, maybe you make your way to the baptism line. Maybe you decide that today is as good a day as any for you to apologize, for you to acknowledge you've never been perfect, you haven't gotten it all right. If there's a way and a time and a place where you can jump into this water and be washed clean, why would anybody say no to that? So you make your way into the baptism line and you wait as more and more people step into the water and declare repentance for their way of life. You're in line most of the afternoon as you hear testimonies of broken marriages, of estranged children, of racism and sexism in the name of power and prestige, of social rejection, of mental manipulation, of dishonesty, of theft, even assault and murder. The people in this line are not the kind of people that you would ever label as good. And yet, in each of their stories, you get bits and pieces that remind you that they're just like you. Person after person committing to change their mind about their way of life. And finally, you find yourself just a few people from the front. And your heart begins to race. You take off your socks and shoes, you hand them to one of this bearded man's assistants who are kind of running up and down the shore to try to help people. And as you do that, your past begins to play in your head, sort of like a short film. Anger comes to the surface. Fear that you haven't felt in a long time. Shame dances through your mind, and you begin to think about what repentance will actually mean for you. Suddenly, as these thoughts are racing through your mind, the crowd goes totally still and quiet. And it sort of pulls you out of this retrospective daydream that you've been in. And there's a soft gasp through the crowd, because the bearded man in the water begins to walk toward the shore. At first you think that he's looking at you, but then you realize that he's actually looking at someone in line behind you. And so you move to one side along with the rest of the crowd, and you hear the bearded man, the one who they call the baptizer, you hear him say, look, and he points. The Lamb of God who has come to take away the evil of the entire world. And of course, you turn along with everybody else to see where he's pointing, who's he talking about? And you see an ordinary looking man standing there and looking right back at the baptizer. Whispers of the man's name ripple through the crowd. Jesus, you hear, this is Jesus, I've heard of this guy. A few people behind you, you hear someone else whisper to their friend, I think I know him, I think he's from Nazareth, we grew up together. And as the baptizer stands right on the edge of the river, this man named Jesus begins to walk down the bank into the water. He walks past the baptizer out into the deepest part of the water, up to his chest, and then he looks back at the crowd as if he is expecting to be baptized next. The baptizer is baffled. You don't blame him. 
You hear him say out loud, loud enough for the crowd to hear, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to be baptized by me? And you get his point. I mean, you understand what he's saying. He's just been preaching baptism in this river as a a form of repentance, that, that it's supposed to represent being cleansed from a change of life, a turning around, a changing of the way that you think. If this man is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, why would he need to be baptized? Jesus speaks up for himself. He says, John, just do this for me now. And understand that I ask you to do this for me so that I will remain perfectly obedient to my Father. You don't have to understand. Just trust me. And if you would, please do me this honor. And so the baptizer sighs and sort of shakes out his hands and walks out into the water. And you watch along with a thousand other people as this man named Jesus, who's supposedly going to carry the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, is plunged into this dirty water and comes up spluttering and gasping for breath just like everybody before him did. Now in that moment, as the top of his head breaks the surface of the water, you hear this rumbling like thunder, which is odd because there's not a cloud in the sky. And then Jesus and John both turn And look at the sky like they can see something, something that you can't see. And then Jesus smiles. And John looks like he's seen a ghost, which at this point has been several minutes of that happening in a row for him, a challenging afternoon. It would be years later for you that you would read a written account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth and you would hear that Jesus and John actually saw into heaven in that moment. And as shocking as what you witnessed that day was, the spiritual significance was really clear only to Jesus and John. This is the drama of Jesus' baptism. This is bigger than three verses in Mark that are written to try to convey to you that this event happened. This is immensely significant. On the edge of the river for the crowd gathered there, back in the towns and villages, this would have been, for Jesus, the first public public reputation that he established. Oftentimes we believe that he lived in general obscurity until he walks into the synagogue and begins to read from Isaiah and communicate that he's there to fulfill that prophecy. But his reputation was that he was the man whom that crazy guy John said might be able to take away what's wrong with you and me. And then, just in time for you to process what that means, he does the very thing that you'd never expect him to even want to do, which is submit himself to baptism. This is hugely important for the life of Jesus. This is hugely important for the life of our church, of the local church today, and for the lives of the apprentices of Jesus. Because prior to John the Baptist showing up on the scene, Becoming an apprentice to a rabbi was about who you knew and what you knew. It was not about being willing to get in the water. John broke that mold, and when Jesus comes, he embraces John, his precursor, and John's disciples, and says to everybody present, this is something new. This is going to be different from what you expect and from everything that you have ever experienced. So I want to leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger there in the story. I want you to feel the tension for these people, that this man comes out of nowhere. He associates himself with the last person in Israel that you would ever expect him to even make eye contact with. Then he gets in the water to get dunked and walks out of the water and heads straight into the wilderness for 40 days. And we're going to go there next week. I'm not going to steal my own thunder this morning, but I want you to understand this is a huge explosion onto the scene, and then immediately he's gone. So that's how he was baptized. What I want to do just with a few minutes here for the rest of our time is just briefly tell you why. Why would Jesus do this? Why does he want to get into the water? Why does he feel the need to be baptized? What is the significance for him? As I told you, I don't think that even John the Baptist really understood this at the time. But you and I don't have to be naive. We have the benefit of thousands of years of church history and teaching. 
as well as the good rest of the story that we get in the Gospel of Mark. So two reasons I want to share with you, and I'm not going to say these are the only two reasons, but I think these are primary. The reasons why Jesus was baptized. First, Jesus was baptized so that he would be more like you. That's something that he wanted. That's something that was positive to him. It was a desire of his, of the entire trinity. The Godhead together collectively agreed that for God to become man would be good and would be the way to reconcile mankind back to God. You see, Jesus holds the office of Messiah, and that's a church word, and it may be a word that you don't care about or that even puts you to sleep by association. But what you need to understand is it's just a fancy Jewish word that means surrogate or substitute. You've all had a substitute teacher. You've had someone who shows up and stands in on behalf of someone who can't be there themselves. That's the role the Messiah plays. His desire and his mission from the beginning is to take the place of another person. And because of his divine nature, because Jesus is man and God both, he's not just here to substitute for one person. He's here to substitute for a potentially unlimited number of persons. To reference the Bible later in the New Testament, Jesus died for anybody who would believe. That's who he goes into the water on behalf of. The Apostle Paul built that doctrine out in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a little technical, so just stay with me, and I'll tell you what he means at the end if it's not immediately clear. Paul says this, Thus it is written that the first man whose name was Adam became a living being, and that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Baked into Paul's theology is the understanding that Jesus is a new sort of prototype of Adam. You've heard of Adam and Eve, right? You've seen the picture. They eat the apple. They get scared. They get dressed. They get kicked out. That's sort of the short version of the story. From Paul's perspective, Jesus comes to redo that. Jesus is himself the firstborn or the first kind of man of a new kind of Christianity. And not just Christianity, but really a new way to be human in general. And so he's referencing Jesus by calling him the last Adam. Verse 46, Paul says, but is it not the spiritual, excuse me, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. The natural comes first and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth. We know that this is part of the story of how man and women were created. A man of dust. The second man is from heaven, Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. You and I, we are made from dirt just like Adam was. We are people of the earth. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And this is where we, natural people, can get connected to Jesus and become spiritual people And Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, now we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, what Jesus did, he did for you. He did in order to be like you. He did in order to occupy the kinds of situations that you're in, the relationships that you struggle with. Jesus had a hard time with his mother and brothers, and we don't even hear from his dad after he's born. So his life was not peachy keen and easy all the time. He lived where you live in the streets, had a job, had people. People didn't like him. People were out to get him. Some people misunderstood who he was and attributed all kinds of great stuff to him that was wrong, that he had to correct. He has lived in the relationships that you've lived in. He's walked what you've walked. His baptism is part of that. If all of that kind of Pauline theology is a bit much to swallow, just stick with Jesus for today. The point is, he gave his life for your life, and he takes your life and gives you his. That's the idea. So remember, Jesus is not guilty of anything. He uniquely does not need to repent. He does not need to be baptized in order to be qualified to be the Messiah or in order to receive the Holy Spirit. There's lots of heresies on the interpretation of especially verse 11 of Mark chapter 1 that are wrong. Jesus got into the water by choice because he was submitting to his Father. 
Fulfilling all righteousness simply means I'm going to live the way that God the Father wants me to. I don't need a reason. I don't have to understand the why. I believe that God is good and what he wants me to do will be good for me and other people. In that way, Jesus shows a very small scale of the kind of obedience that he lived with for his entire life. This story is an exception to the rule in the sense that no other rabbi was getting in the water and being baptized except for Jesus, but it really sets the stage for the rest of Jesus' life. The way that Jesus was humble, the way that he served other people, the way that he was loving, these are themes that fall all the way through his life until he is crucified on the cross. And in that way, his baptism is right in line with who he is. His act of obedience is for you and I. In other words, Jesus did what he asks us to do. And his example is how we learn to do what he taught. Jesus associated himself with people like you. Jesus associated himself with people like me when he got into that water. He placed himself among the guilty, not so that he could be saved, but so that he could save us. And not because he feared God's wrath against sin, but so that he could step in between that wrath and you and I. Jesus was baptized so that he would be more like you. Second, Jesus was baptized so that you would be more like him. You see the exchange here. This is what it means to be a surrogate. His life for yours, your life for his. That happens even in the water of baptism. Jesus' attitude, his willingness, his joy, these are not just examples for us. These are things that are actually really available to you if you're an apprentice of Jesus. His way of life is the way into joy. Jesus' way of life is the way into rest. His way of life is the way into restoration of you personally, of your relationships, of your whole world. Jesus arrived in the ancient Near Eastern world because he loved people. That's what compelled him to leave heaven in the first place. He loved humanity. Him and the Father and the Spirit all loved the world together. And so Jesus was born as a man who lived a real life, as I told you, with real problems. God did not have to be convinced to allow the Son to come to the earth as a human, nor did Jesus have to be bribed or manipulated in any way to become willing to suffer through a human life and then be killed by the people he came to save. The love of Jesus is crystal clear even in his baptism. By submitting himself to baptism, he opened up the path of obedience, the path of love between God and humanity. My favorite author, Dallas Willard, said it like this. He says, we must understand that God does not love us without liking us through gritted teeth, as sort of Christian love is sometimes thought to do. Rather, out of the eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewed being, the Heavenly Father cherishes the earth, and he cherishes every human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, The unstintingly affectionate regard of God toward all his creatures is the natural outflow of what he is to the core, which we vainly try to capture with our tired but indispensable old word, love. Jesus was compelled to come to us by a love that was born before time began. The same love that God had for the earth and its people on the very day that he began to create the universe, that same love burned in Jesus as he stepped into the water to be baptized. That's the why that he doesn't have time to explain to his cousin John the Baptist. John is stuck on the theology of the thing. What's it going to do to my ministry? What's it going to say to other people? How's this going to look? And Jesus is burning inside to be obedient to the Father to the point that he would go to the cross to save you. It's love, and it's been love from the beginning. Now, today's message is not an argument for baptism as a prerequisite for church membership. Maybe you're waiting for that sort of shoe to drop, right? That I'm going to put a big squeeze on you that you got to be baptized. 
That's not what these scriptures are about. I don't want to cheapen them by dragging that in. There's plenty of good evidence later in the New Testament for why and how we do baptism. But I do want to emphasize that the verses themselves are about baptism being good for you. Baptism being an act of will, wanting to be baptized. Baptism in a setting where the water overwhelms and consumes you. Baptism in a public place in front of witnesses. Some who understand and agree, some who are skeptical and still stand on the shore and doubt. Baptism into church membership is your choice. If you don't want to take that step, nobody here is going to make you. We love you. We're glad you're here. We hope you'll stick around. The argument that Jesus' baptism makes is not about getting you into a church. It's about getting you into him. And it's about getting him into you. When we step into the water, we aren't just doing that because a pastor told us we should or because it's what our parents expect or whatever else compels us to do churchy things now and again. We enter the water because Jesus entered the water. And let me be super clear with you. I can't probably overemphasize the significance of the moment of baptism for the believer, but it is for the believer. I'm not trying to hint at or imply that being washed in the water is how you become saved or part of God's family, not at all. You must start with Jesus, but his example is an example on purpose. He wants you in the water for the same reason that he went into the water. We claim the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We claim the name of God the Father and the Holy Spirit every time we step into the water for baptism. And we do that because they were all present with Jesus on the day of his baptism. And they've been present at every other baptism that's ever happened in human history. They've always been there, and they've loved every one that's happened. Jesus is there. God is there when you take the step of faith and walk into the water. The water marks you. It's not about what the water can do. It's about what you do in the water. And in the water, we claim the same Jesus who has already claimed us. We go into the water and say, this is for him, in the same way that he went into the water on our behalf. Yes, a person can be baptized in order to join a church. And if you're here and you haven't, I think you should. But when we approach the water, we ought not think about it as a theological exercise. It's not just about demonstrating our own maturity or trying to demonstrate that we understand complicated Bible concepts or the strength of our will to stay committed to God this time and really get it right. We need to approach the water the same way that Jesus did, with nothing to prove with humility, with great appreciation for the one who helps submerge us and then helps us back up out of the water with a deep sense of acceptance, a deep sense of hope and love from God and for God. Jesus in the water with John is a picture of love, of humility, and of service. It is the starting point of Jesus' ministry, and it is a snapshot of the way that Jesus lived and loved everyone he met. So my charge to you today is simple. Just embrace the drama of that action, of that moment, the beauty of it, how amazing and unparalleled it is in the whole life of Christ, the whole Bible. And may we, as apprentices of Jesus, follow our rabbi as he loves and serves in humility. May we just simply follow him into a life like that. I hope that that will sink into your heart, your mind, and will make a difference in your life. I love you. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. It is amazing to me. The, the clarity of the accounts that we have, the simple details of when and where you did certain things on the earth, I think that it's so easy to begin to fantasize or even turn the truth of your word and your story into just that, just tales and myths that teach principles. Let us remember today, God, that you loved us enough to get down here in the dirt where we live. The beauty, the magnificence of your willing submission to God the Father, and not begrudgingly, and not in a cocky way, like, look how awesome I am, but simply out of love for us. Compel us, God, even now as we come to your table, to practice another of the ordinances. 
to remember and understand that we've been invited graciously and accepted by you in love, and that's what drives this action. We love you, God. We trust you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.